Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to Research Unplugged. This is our third event of the season. Um, Research Unplugged, for those of you who are new, is an idea. It's an outreach. It's an outreach. Um, it's an outreach for the research department to the community. And it's um, based on an idea of a Cafe Scientifique, which is an international community of um, conversation cafes. The concept is to bring an academic into an informal situation, such as this, to speak with academics, community members, and students about relevant issues. Today's speaker, Dr. Jerry Zoltan, is a graduate of Penn State. He earned his bachelor's in 1969 where he was, uh, in his undergraduate career, president of the Folklore Society. He earned his master's degree in 1974, and he earned his PhD in 1982, all from Penn State University. He's um, worked with, uh, he spearheaded the return of the Fairfield Four. He's co-hosted an international radio show with uh, sketch artist Robert Crumb. And he's also worked recently with the Dixie Hummingbirds, who have um, been honored by the city of Philadelphia as having a street named after them in a section of Girard Ave. This uh, is Research Penn State uh, Publications new magazine. It's hot off the presses, so if anyone didn't get enough to the table, we'll have some on our way out. And uh, without further ado, Dr. Jerry Zoltan. Thank you, Penn State Research, for having me come along. I think what I'm going to do is just talk. Uh, I'm going to try to stay out of it, actually, and let these video clips I brought do uh, do most of the talking. But uh, you know, I'm thinking 10. I'm sorry, 20, 30 minutes, and then we'll turn it over to uh, you folks if you want to talk about anything or bring up anything special. Cultural roots of rock and roll. I think uh, when Elvis Presley hit the scene, you know, on American TV and the Ed Sullivan Show back in 1956, a lot of white America, especially up here in the north, thought that it was a burst out of the blue. You know, what, what is this? Uh, but in fact, uh, it's not just a burst out of the blue. It's a burst out of the blues. It's got to do with jazz. It's got to do with gospel. Over the last uh, 30 years or so, I've really had a chance to learn about that firsthand, and that's what I want to share with you today and I want to start by talking a little bit about jazz which is not you know directly hooked up I don't think to rock and roll but there are some elements of jazz that do find their way into the music and uh, uh, I want to start off with a clip I think that uh, that illustrates that this is uh, the Duke Ellington band from the year 1932 and uh, the clip is actually from one of the most bizarre films I've ever seen. Uh, it was called Check and Double Check. It was an Amos and Andy film full of racist stereotype where two white actors in blackface play Amos and Andy. And yet, right next to that is the incredible Duke Ellington band. I don't know, uh, you know if either unit saw the, the scenes at the other shot, but the, the, the performance clip is uh, fantastic. Uh, among other things, uh, during this period of 32, uh, Duke Ellington had an outstanding uh, you know, horn section. And we see here uh, people like Ray Nanton and Cootie Williams, 
Uh, and they're using that little technique with the, with the top hat to give a kind of a wah-wah effect to the sound. And I think that that, uh, you know, that sort of wah-wah sound would show up much later in rock and roll guitar leads with people like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and that, that sort of thing. Um, there's also, of course, uh, what uh, I think Langston Hughes, or maybe it was Duke, called the velocity, I think it was Duke called it the velocity of celebration in this performance. And uh, this music, I think, uh, brings that spirit that would find its way into rock and roll to the table. This is uh, Duke Ellington, 1932. I got to hit the right buttons to get everything going. Could it be that the uh, batteries on this thing are? No, there we go. <laughs> segregated as the social world. And white America was just learning about what black entertainment could be, what it was all about, through films like this that were marketed you know, to the mainstream Anglo audience. And suddenly Duke Ellington uh, is being seen and heard by people who probably wouldn't have known much about him before that. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, there were theaters and films that uh, were strictly segregated, designed, marketed to African-Americans, made by African-Americans. 
And one of the gems that comes out of that world of segregation is uh, the one and only film of Bessie Smith, who uh, was known as the Empress of the Blues, that kind of thing. She uh, first got into the business as a, a dancer. She traveled, especially uh, through the South on the Chitlin Circuit, traveling tent shows where the weather was warm a lot of the year. They could go from town to town and town. She was uh, mentored along by the mother of the blues, uh, Gertrude Ma Rainey, but uh, we don't have any film footage of Ma Rainey. We do of Bessie Smith, thank God, and I want to show you a little clip from this film from 1929. A lot of you who know rock and roll probably know that the uh, rock and roll singer Janis Joplin really modeled her whole style uh, after Bessie Smith. Bessie was her uh, heroine and uh, I think that's pretty evident in here. We see in Bessie also, uh, you know, the film itself is almost like a soap opera of the day, you know, dealing with the seamier side of relationships and life. But Bessie is acting, and at one point you'll see her actually swaying a bit, you know, the idea that it's show business, you know, you put across the tune uh, and you put on a show, and that voice and that growling would find its way into rock and roll. Just to set this up, uh, Bessie has just discovered her boyfriend with another woman in Bessie's own room. Uh, she beats the crap out of the both of them, actually, and throws them out, which I'm told is not too far-fetched because Bessie was a pretty powerful woman with strong ideas. And uh, she then uh, breaks into the song, the W.C. Handy classic, St. Louis Blues. But here's a chance to see Bessie Smith up close uh, and personal.
from the south to the north. And Chicago, on the northern end of the Mississippi, became a mecca for the blues, for musicians who uh, brought their music from Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas, but had to change it, um, change the words, change some of the ideas to, to uh, sort of cater to this new urban audience. Uh, African Americans with money to spend because there was work in Chicago. And a whole new form of blues came out of that scene. And I think that that post-war Chicago blues had a tremendous influence on what rock and roll would be. Uh, this is something that was occurring, you know, starting in 46, 47, right after the war, right on up to the beginnings of rock and roll. A couple of things uh, that really distinguish it. Um, well, one of the primary things was technology, the ability to electrify and amplify a guitar and that sort of thing. And then in Chicago on the south side, they had this remarkable Maxwell Street uh, where merchants set up uh, shops and on market days, on the weekends, African Americans would come out to buy whatever goods they needed and the merchants would put blues bands out in front of the stores to act as kind of shills to draw people in. They'd run an electric cord, you know, from the back of the store out onto the sidewalk. It wasn't unusual for these musicians to play their Saturday night gig, uh, finish up around two in the morning, head over to Maxwell Street and set up by the crack of dawn and be up and running and playing a whole other day. Uh, I got a little clip I want to share with you by one of these musicians, J.B. Lenore. This is actually a very short clip from a home movie that I think illustrates a lot of what rock and roll would pick up on. You'll see him, you know, with a with a, a large, newly amplified guitar. He's got a little rack on his uh, uh, shoulders with a microphone stuck in it uh, so that he can amplify his voice and sing into it. And of course, his outfit is totally outrageous. And I think the whole idea of, you know, the rock and roll show and the costuming is all pretty evident in this little clip from J.B. Lenore. Wearing leopard when I feel so good, I don't know what to do. Skip James, which, which is where he probably got it too, but that's a whole other story. 
Uh, and um, where was I going to go from there? Oh, uh, well, of course, the one musician who really emerges, oh, I know what I was going to say. Interestingly, most white kids in America who, when J.B. Lenore was out there playing, weren't that aware of the blues in Chicago <laughs> in our own backyard. The British kids were the ones who picked up on this style of blues. And it's people like Eric Clapton who talk about this kind of blues being the thing that made him want to get into the music, as he's put it, you know, one man, one guitar against the world, you know, and <laughs> what a great image. I think the, the giant to emerge <coughs> out of that whole genre has to be Muddy Waters. McKinley Morganfield is his real name. Muddy Waters, who uh, came from uh, Mississippi, moved up to Chicago, fine-tuned his skills on Maxwell Street and became a giant. I want to play you a clip from Scorsese's uh, 1970s film about the band, uh, The uh, Last Waltz, where the band, white rock and rollers, invite their icons to join them on stage for a farewell concert. And they perform, quite credibly, Muddy's classic tune, Manish Boy. And the thing about this tune that I want to get in here is just that uh, we begin to see songs that speak out uh, you know, against the kind of uh, racism and pervasive uh, racism that these, these performers were experiencing. On the surface, it kind of sounds like he's just doing one of these macho, I'm a man, I can make love to you, baby, in five minutes' time. Never been able to figure out if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but <laughs> the point is that this song is really about being a man. And you'll hear him say, no B, no O, no Y, don't call me boy, I'm a man. And those lyrics sometimes get lost when you hear the song. This is uh, that great Muddy Waters clip, 1974. He's no longer with us, but it's a pleasure to have his work captured. It's a fine. My mother sounds will be the greatest man alive. Now I'm a man, I just made it 21. Way past 21. Way past. I was a lead woman. I have lots of fun. But that's a man. Yeah. I spell him. A child. I spell it M A N. No B. No B. No. Oh, child. Why? That mean manish boy. Which is where the group got their name. She can't resist. She can't resist. 
Just after the Kennedy assassination. Oh, dear. 
that every man knows all. Let them know that it is a sin. such huge fans of the Dixie Hummingbirds that they would actually visit with them and take lessons from them in stagecraft and harmony and construction, that kind of thing. So when I say that uh, these groups had a very direct impact on rock and roll, I mean, you know, sometimes very direct. And that really caps what I wanted to get across to you, just thought that maybe through visualizations of some of these performance clips, I could make my case that indeed, you know, this, this thing we call rock and roll uh, is, is really uh, usurped from a lot of traditional African-American music ranging from jazz with its improvisation and, and rhythms and 
you know, musical uh, instrumental uh, mastery to blues with its talking about life and the seamy side and electric guitar to ultimately gospel, you know, uh, with vocal group harmonies and messages, that kind of thing. Uh, and at this point, I'm open to anything you might be curious about or would like to talk about. Yeah. Uh, just two quick questions. Do you think Rocket 88 was the first rock and roll song? <laughs> Rocket 88. Interesting tune. It was a, a band led by Ike Turner, the infamous Ike Turner. He took them up to, uh, to Memphis. He was uh, actually recorded that, as you probably know, in Sam uh, Phillips' studio, the same studio that within a short time later would give us the first Elvis Presley recordings. I don't, I don't know if I would call Rocket 88 the first tune. I mean, um, I know of tunes that go way back before Rocket 88 that even have the phrase rock and roll in them. There's even a tune called Shake, Rattle, and Roll that goes back to the uh, 30s, you know? So these ideas were out there floating around. What do you think? I think, I mean, I'm not an expert, but it was, I think, the first commercially uh, viable one. That, so a lot of people think that is the first one. And my second quick question, do you yeah. think, didn't Elvis Presley want his career to go towards the gospel side? Did you ever? I, I don't know if when Elvis started he had any clear idea of where it was going to go. Well, but, about time? but there is no question that he was t terribly immersed, not terribly, but deeply immersed in black gospel. Yeah. And would go to the churches. Uh, I understand from talking to some of the Jordanaires that after performances, you know, they all go to hear black groups sing, and one of Elvis's first, uh, I think his last appearance in Ed Sullivan was a gospel tune, Peace in the Valley, written by Thomas Dorsey, and maybe something that Elvis learned from Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers. I'm not sure what the source was. But uh, I don't know if Elvis would have wanted to go completely in that direction. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yes, I like all kinds of good music, yeah. but it seems that the AM stations these days are failing in the music that I like. Do you find yourself not appreciating today's music as you did in What's the 60s? Radio, right? <laughs> I barely listen, uh, you know, because it's become a manufactured product. And that, that happened early on, you know, as soon as the uh, moguls figured out how to do it, they were cranking out, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of, uh, I'm thinking of the Ford, you know, assembly line kinds of, of music. Uh, not to say that there isn't interesting talent out there, but I've, I think uh, with internet downloads and my own passion for old beat up records, I spend, you know, a lot of my time discovering. One of the reasons I collect old 78s and 45s is because there are gems of performance on those records that never found their way to CD or anywhere else, and it's, it's like a constant world of discovery or something brilliant. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this question. Um, when, when did, um, at what particular point did uh, rock and roll change its name to rock music? Was there any particular reason for it? <laughs> I don't know that, that there was some entity called rock and roll that said, let's change our name, but I do know that there's a long history of the market flipping terms, you know, in the beginning, uh, before 1920, the only African-American artists to record were spiritual singers like the Fisk Jubilee Singers, and those records were marketed to white Americans as examples of American, um, uh, African-American traditional music. Then, 1920, Mamie Smith, black jazz artist, records that thing called Love, 
and uh, it sells a ton of records, and there's this new uh, market, and the record companies come up with the term race records. You'd see that on the label, race record. That meant that it was a black artist, and those records were marketed to African-American record buyers. That would be the going term until the early 50s when they say Jerry Wexler, the Atlantic Records producers are now, at that time was working for uh, uh, Billboard magazine, came up with the term rhythm and blues uh, to replace race, uh, something a little less, you know, a little more neutral. And then Alan Freed, so they say, starts calling rhythm and blues when he's playing it to white kids rock and roll, even though it's the very same thing. Um, rock is tough, you know, after, uh, once we get into the 60s and 70s, I don't know that there was any thinking behind calling it rock music other than it was a quicker way to say it, but maybe you have some insight that I don't have. What, what is your thought on that? Uh, I, I think what happened was, when I've done my own research, it's like rock and roll became a little bit more aggressive and freer and wilder and stuff by the late 60s. Yeah. And rock and roll was such a more fairly infancy type thing. They said, like, okay, let's give it a more grown-up thing. Instead of mm. saying rock and roll, say rock! So it may have been, may, maybe it was writers and critics yeah, for, for just underground people, magazines and yeah. things that were writing about it. Yeah, so I never really know. It's a good point. We have punk rock. Yeah. There's no, you know, there's different kinds of rock. There's different kinds of rock. Yeah. Wasn't there an early crossover between blues and gospel? The example. Yeah. The example um, of one. As I recall, in 1943, uh, I saw a sister was in a therapy, Eddie Vincent, on the same bill. One yeah, doing, well, one doing blues, one doing gospel. He's saying he saw Sister Ro Rosetta Tharp on the same bill with Eddie Vincent, and I'm sure that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And, and uh, Rosetta herself jumped back and forth. There were times when she would come back into the church and sing only gospel. Then she'd come out and make some records that were clearly not gospel. Uh, but that she was always walking that fine line. I think the interesting story is Thomas Dorsey, no relation to the Dorsey brothers. Uh, Thomas Dorsey was a down and dirty blues singer who, uh, you know, was, uh, his, his uh, nom du record was uh, uh, Georgia Tom. And he was recording tunes uh, with double entendre lyrics like, you know, it's tight like that and, and this sort of thing. He went through a terrible tragedy, uh, his wife and child died, you know, his wife died in childbirth. And uh, he, uh, as he tells it himself, locks himself away for a couple of days and emerges with this new tune called Precious Lord, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. And it opens up this whole new genre of what is now going to be called gospel as opposed to <coughs> spirituals. And Dorsey brings this blues, all of his experience as a blues man, into religious music. And that may be one of the starting points for that interesting cross between blues and gospel. Then Ray Charles, many years later, you know, crosses blues and gospel in a whole new way, and comes up with something we started calling soul. And so there's this long back and forth cross pollination between the two. Yeah. Did, has hip hop evolved out of rock? Hip hop. Back to an in my humble opinion. And I, you, you may disagree with it. I think it comes more from gospel. I didn't play you any examples, but I've got tons of examples of groups like the Golden Gate Quartet. They would set up a rhythmic backdrop, and then the lead singer wouldn't sing. He would rap out a story over the backdrop. 
and of course, these were stories. Uh, uh, sometimes they were about uh, biblical stories, but sometimes they were about life. Uh, my favorite, uh, there were two that I really like. One is called Stalin Wasn't Stalin. This is a World War II song. But my favorite was called Atom and Evil. And it's just a rap about the evils of uh, the atomic bomb. And I think that the Gates were already probably doing something they had heard when they were kids, and they were recording in the 30s and 40s. So I think this is a tradition that goes way back, you know, in black religious experience. Not so much uh, rock and roll, you know, but the idea of rapping out a story over a rhythmic backdrop uh, with a message, you know, gospel. I was wondering if it could be traced back to the troubadour tradition. Um, well. Make a good dissertation. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that the, the uh, folks who originated the style probably in, in, you know, maybe slavery days, I don't know. Well, no, I happened to be listening to 50 Cent. Yeah. Oh. And I heard ba-ba-bum, ba-ba-bum. I said, my God, that's an Alexandrine. Oh, okay. Well, there may be things today in hip-hop that come from different, I think what I'm talking about is just the concept of doing that sort of thing can probably be traced but it's hard to say what influences have found their way into contemporary hip-hop these days. Probably a lot of things, I, I don't know, I'd have to talk to somebody. Yeah? You mentioned Sun Records briefly, and I highly recommend anyone interested in this to go to the tour of Sun Records. It was the coolest tour ever. Amazingly, the Sun Records studio, which got started when <laughs> Sam Phillips in Memphis was recording blues, people like Howlin' Wolf, who I didn't talk about, and other great blues <laughs> artists, and then, you know, Elvis Presley walks in and they record Elvis and they make history. That studio is still there on Union Avenue in Memphis, exactly as it was the day Elvis Presley recorded there. And the, the thing that I find interesting is that they sold the studio and for years it was some kind of a little shop, but the guys that owned it never, they never even took the, the uh, you know, the paneling off the wall. They left everything just as it was. And then I think some, Young people bought it back, if I'm not mistaken. Back in the family. I don't think Sam was the same. Sam passed away somewhat recently, but his family, his son was running when I was down there two years ago. Uh -huh. So it used to be a paint store, that's what happened. Something like that. But you walk in that room, yeah. and uh, you know, the ghosts are all in there. You know, it's, it's really quite yeah, something. It's, it's a, it was a good in Memphis? Yeah, in Memphis. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've never gone to Graceland, but I've been to Sun Studios every time I can get there, because it really is a room uh, full of magic and amazing things happened in that space. Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King made his first records there in that little room. You know, so. They walk you through all the floors. Where they got the microphones, yeah, they got the so original cool. microphones, the original pianos. I mean, they really have gone to some great lengths to, uh, to make that what it was. And there's a nice little place to eat there, too. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm struck not just by the musically, the, the, the musical beats, but also watching these wonderful films, some of them highly posed scripted as they are, I'm struck by the per performative nature, the physically performative nature of some of the musicians. And I'm wondering if we could talk about the roots of the roots themselves. When the, I think in, with Duke Ellington, when he has the silver top top hat, the member of the orchestra, I mean, Please. the wah-wah sound <laughs> it comes, is more pr pronounced at other times in that song. And I thought about that, and I wonder, I mean, to what extent does that hearken to vaudeville or minstrelsy, for that matter? Yeah, I, I don't know if I have a good answer to that, but I mean, I think it all, I think that uh, it all ties in. I mean, obviously, 
during slavery days, slaves weren't free to travel and be professional entertainers other than right there on a particular plantation or in a small regional space. But then I read incredible <coughs> tales of Congo Square in New Orleans, which still exists. It's now Louis Armstrong uh, Park. And on market days, during slavery days, uh, you begin to hear jazz bands set up all around the perimeter of Congo Square. And uh, you know they'd be trying to outplay and outdo each other, putting on a show, uh, you know, to attract, um, uh, well, to attract listeners who give them money. Uh, but there's no question that Ma Rainey seemed to be very familiar with, uh, you know, the uh, the show, the Anglo showbiz tradition, and there were black minstrel shows, uh, and this was a, a way that you could uh, work. Um, Maybe the only way, if you were black, I was talking to my friend Herman here on the way down about, this doesn't quite connect, but came to my mind. I had an opportunity to interview uh, Nicodemus Stewart, who played the slow-talking janitor on the old Amos and Andy show. And Nick was absolutely nothing like the character he played. But I asked him, you know, why were you willing to play that character and have that stereotype projected nationwide on TV in the 50s? And, well, the first thing he said was, if you wanted to work, you had to play that character. You didn't have a choice. And secondly, I wanted to rake in the dough. Ultimately, the joke would be on them because he used the money he made to create a theater in South Central LA to train young African Americans in the theatrical arts. You know, and I think that might have been part of what a lot of these performers were thinking. You know. Uh, how can we break into the to the big money, the mainstream, uh, and uh, and probably a genuine affection for showbiz? They say that when Ma Rainey performed, you'd have a variety show, kind of like a little traveling Ed Sullivan show, and then the curtains would open. There would be a giant old wind-up Victrola, you know, but it was huge, and uh, the band would start playing, and suddenly the doors of the Victrola would swing open. And, Ma Rainey would step out, you know, in her <laughs> gowns and headdresses, and the crowd would go wild. You know? And that's uh, the, the late 20s and 30s. She was already doing that kind of thing. Riverboat uh, performances had a lot to do with uh, spreading the music and people picking up different styles of performing and working. But it was Charlie Patton, a Delta blues singer, who used to put the guitar behind his back and, you know, uh, put on a show any way he could. I don't know if that's getting at any of the things you're curious about, but and maybe somebody here can add to that. Any anybody? Uh, well, maybe not. <laughs> anybody else want to talk about anything? Yes. I grew up in the '60s in California, yeah. and uh, my parents had a big record collection: blues, folk, and some of the popular music of the '60s, the rock and roll from the '60s. And it seemed to them, perhaps, what I absorbed from it was that there was this direct line of influence of the protest song of Lightning Hopkins or Big Bill Broomsy or you know the bourgeois blues. And those people were heroes to the Woody Guthrie's and the Pete Seegers. Yeah. And then the influence continuing on into people like Dylan. And just wondering if that seems right to you, that there, there was some yeah. sort of continuation of that protest song, even the. Uh, I think so. I mean, Big Bill Bluesy had lines like, if you're, if you're white, it's all right. If you're black, get back, get back, you know? <laughs> Talking very directly about circumstances he was dealing with. I always think, uh, you know, thank God for technology because it's really 
made all of this possible. You know, back before we had this technology of recordings, radio, etc., music pretty much stayed where it was, you know, and little regional pockets all around the country. And if you, you know, either the performer had to travel or you had to go there to see them, you know, and then this record thing got invented and uh, uh, suddenly a group from Southern, uh, well, like the Fairfield Four, a group I work with, you know, or their heroes, uh, the, um, uh, the famous Blue Jay singers of Birmingham, Alabama. They would have never been known outside of Birmingham except that they made this record and started to spread around. And, uh, you know, so that, that is often the way, you know, it spread. Then radio, which knows no color lines. When I came up in Pittsburgh, there was a, a black radio station, WAMO. I listened to it all the time, you know, and it was, uh, uh, you know, it was a godsend. I learned so much from listening to that. But it was not meant for kids like me. It was supposed to be for, you know, the adult African American market. But radio obliterated all those those kinds of things. And so Woody gets a chance to meet Bill Brunzi, and and they learn from each other. And Bob Dylan, who has his own radio show these days, and I can't believe it, but apparently a Broadway show, which I never thought would happen. Uh, but uh, that's a whole other ballgame. Dylan plays a lot of these songs that. Uh, he heard on records, you know, that influenced him, and then ultimately, you know, Dylan knew Victoria Spivey, the blues singer contemporary of Bessie Smith, and actually learned directly from her, and on and on and on it goes. So I think your folks are right on target with that. Yeah. It's just a thought, I mean, um, currently, you know, I think if you, uh, I remember, I read Clay Aiken's biography, and I don't know if it was he who said it, but if you look at all of the American Idol, I mean, Majority of the American Idol uh, hail from the South. Oh, that's interesting. Clay Aiken, Clay Kelly Clarkson from Texas, um, Ruben Studder from Alabama, mm -hmm. uh, Fantasia. They then they all had this, um, you know, the roots of their own music. I think in gospel and some of that, you know, traditional music. Of, yeah, I think uh, it intermingles a little bit more and is more out there it's, in it's, that part yeah, of the world, perhaps. Yeah. You know, and they just, you know, this is an American, you know, uh, icon. This biggest popularity of this kind of contest, and it's, I, um, it's uh, I think that just speaks to your, you know. Yeah, I do know that we were talking about AM radio before. Mm -hmm. Rarely here up north do I hear interesting little AM radio stations, you know, at the end of the dial, but when I go in the south, there's stuff popping out all the time that uh, I'll listen to for hours, regional blues shows, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, it could be done here, but it uh, doesn't happen, you know. Um, do you ever, uh, or have you ever looked at like the music of Jerry Lee Lewis? Sure. Because, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, I guess one of his biggest hits was uh, a whole lot of shaking going on. He uh, learned it from a black woman named, uh, you know, uh, uh, Big Maybell, who recorded it years before he did. He made it his own. Uh, a lot of people don't even know anymore about her uh, uh, situation. He's, uh, he, you know, he and uh, James Swaggart are cousins. Jimmy Lee Swaggart and Jerry Lee Lewis. They both grew up with gospel and blues surrounding them, and Swaggart, you know, took the direction of gospel, and Jerry Lee, rock and roll, although he always wavered. Well, he learned a lot in the, the you know, going in the back door of some honky-tonks, too. Right, right. <laughs> I think it was like, a, his music was like a, you know, the very religious, you know, gospel with the, you know, honky-tonks. Exactly. Well, I understand. I mean, it's my understanding that uh, the owner of Sun Records, Sam Phillips, had a heck of a time convincing him to record "Great Balls of Fire" because of the 
double entendre in the title that somehow gets lost on uh, people who hear it today. But uh, it wasn't lost on Jerry Lee Lewis at the time. But at least, you know, uh, unlike his cousin, Jerry Lee Lewis is straightforward about, you know, who he is and where he's coming from. Got a new record out, too. I haven't heard it. He does. Yeah, everybody called The Last Man Standing. Pretty depressing title. A little bit of shaking going yeah, yeah, except, uh, you know, when, I, when I, I have to confess, when I hear Jerry Lee, what I'm hearing really is somebody imitating Little Richard, you know, and it always strikes me that way, but, but I'll listen to, you know, Jerry Lee as well, but uh, uh, Little Richard's still doing it, so is Bo Diddley, and so is Chuck Berry, it's amazing that our pioneering black rock and rollers are still out there and doing it. As my friend James Hill of the Fairfield Four used to say, uh, I'm still kicking, not too high, but I'm <laughs> kicking. That's sort of the way it is. Have we got anywhere we. Oh, yeah. nope. Can I say that I coincidentally brought copies of my book here if anybody's nope, yeah. interested? <laughs> uh, book on the Dixie Hummingbirds and their role in shaping rhythm and blues. Rock. Uh, thank you everyone for showing up and uh, next week here we're going to have Dr. Eddie Holmes giving a presentation and uh, I'd like to say thank you Jerry. Thank you everybody.